Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, March 12th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Last night, President Joe Biden gave his first White House address to the nation and said that there was a, quote, good chance that on the 4th of July, Americans would be able to hold cookouts in their backyards and we would be celebrating not just America's independence, but independence from the virus itself. He also directed states to make vaccinations available to all Americans, regardless of age or status, on May 1st, another hopeful sign that things may be getting back to normal. But the immigration crisis shows no sign of improving as migrants, including unaccompanied minors, continue to stream across the southern border. We'll talk about that, and we'll look at Stacey Abrams, the former Democratic candidate for governor and political organizer, who has emerged as a key player in the state of Georgia a state that will play a key role in 2022. Real Clear Politics columnist A.B. Stoddard is here to explain why Abrams has become a pivotal figure, not just in Georgia, but nationwide. And we're also joined by Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon and RCP co-founder and president Tom Bevan. So, Tom, let's start with last night's speech, which came just hours after the president signed the COVID relief bill. Uh, What did you make of the speech and how much are you looking forward to that backyard barbecue on the 4th of July? (laughs) Um, Well, full disclosure, I did not watch the speech because I was watching my daughter play her first field hockey game of the season, which was, as I mentioned to Carl earlier off the air, glorious. It was a beautiful day here. The sun was setting, you know, as the lights were coming on and the girls were all running around the field in masks, of course, but... Um, but it was wonderful to see the kids getting back to doing what they love to do. Um, so I did watch it this morning. I saw a bit of the reaction before I watched it, which I never, I try never to be on Twitter or hear anybody else because I don't want them to shade my, my uh, impressions of, of the speech. I, I thought it was fine. I mean, Biden's good at the empathy thing. He is the sort of docile, sweet, old, you know... <laughs> Wait a minute, Joe. wait a minute. Docile and old? Come on. Well, I mean, he's, he's, he's a, a commander-in-chief you know, of, the, of the mightiest he's, military he's a, he's a He's a cuddly, lovable grandpa or uncle. Look, I thought it was a little off-putting that he <laughs> didn't give Donald Trump any credit for the vaccine. It was as if this whole thing, you know, it all got going on January 20th when he took office. That was a bit unseemly. And it did, it wouldn't have cost him a thing politically to just give a nod or a tip of the cap or anything to, to Trump for the work that he did um, on the vaccine in particular. I mean, I was a little bit put off by the whole, well, if everybody behaves themselves and they follow all the rules, you can have five people in your backyard on July 4th. But if not, well, we might have to lock you down again. I mean, it just seemed a little... I, I would not have phrased it that way. If I was his speechwriter, I would not have uh, advised him to phrase it that way. But overall, you know, look, he was trying to he was trying to do a few things, right? Commemorate the loss that we've all suffered and also try and strike an optimistic tone heading forward. I thought it could have been, a, as Susan Crabtree wrote on our website today in her analysis, he could have been a little more forward looking, a little more upbeat, a little more optimistic. But but all in all, I think he was I think he did a fine job. It was fine. Maybe it does seem that this is standard operating procedure now to sort of under promise and over deliver. Is that what's going on? And is that a smart strategy? First of all, I agree with Tom. <clears throat> I think that Biden easily could have and should have acknowledged the vaccine development was started in the last administration that they've built on it, etc. But they learned a lot from the last administration. And that was that uh, Trump is uh, full of hot air and he's a salesman and a showman and he overpromises 
um, for fun. And then he underdelivered, and that's what he did. And so they were really smart to come in saying, we don't have this certain goal on this certain date. Um, I guess they did for the uh, COVID relief package, which is they wanted it done by March 14th because there were provisions expiring on March 14th and they got it done before. But uh, to keep moving the vaccine bar, you make people happier and you get less blowback. It's just stupid to overpromise with something like this. We've been at this for a year. People are exhausted. Some of their lives have been ruined. And, you know, to varying degrees, we're all on that spectrum somewhere, right? And it would be a terrible time for him to come in and do what Trump did, to say, we're going to clean this up. It's going to be totally great. By Labor Day, you're going to be at a concert. So I also agree with Tom that it's not smart to start talking about restrictions or lockdowns or anything like that. Um, He wants to be measured and careful, but you don't want to bum people out. But you also don't want to tell everyone it's over and that everything's normal. Um, you want to uh, under-promise and over-deliver. So, Carl, you wrote about this this morning, uh, and you compared it to FDR. I'm curious as to how you see that parallel. Well, to, uh, today it was on my mind because today, March 12th, this date, in 1933, um, Franklin Roosevelt gave the first of his radio addresses that became to be called the Fireside Chats. And he took office in the you know the banking uh, situation was deteriorating rapidly. Uh, FDR had, had to call a, call, call a banking holiday, which panicked people. And so he started by saying, you know, and this was a time 90% of Americans got their news, listened, had a radio and got their news that way. And he said, I want to talk a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. Very simple. And then, But then when he ended, he said, it is your problem, no less than mine. Together we cannot fail. And, and, and as I was thinking about this last night, Biden you know, the early part of the speech, the, the the boasting, the dubious statistics, the airbrushing Operation Warp Speed out of history, that that's all politicians do that kind of thing now. It's the, it's the weakest thing uh, for me, in my mind, for a president to do. But Biden got through that. And then he, in his real tone, was the one he has stressed for more than a year, you know, unity. He said, there was a, a line from his last night. It was Rooseveltian. We lost our faith in whether government or democracy can deliver on really hard things for the American people, he said. But as I stand here tonight, we're proving once again something I've said time and again, until you're probably tired of hearing it. I say to foreign leaders and domestic alike, it's never, ever a good bet to bet against the American people. And, you know, that, that's, that's how Roosevelt talked to the American people. And he, Roosevelt talked about American know-how. And he'd, he'd use that, everything from building the P-51 Mustang to curing polio. He was a, really into science and the American contribution to science. And... Biden actually used a phrase last night that FDR used, American ingenuity was that. And it's, it's almost a kind of an old-fashioned expression. Then again, Biden's 78, so why not, right? He said, you know, America is coming back. The development, manufacturing, distribution of vacuum, vac- vaccines in record time is a true miracle, miracle of science. So for those reasons, you know, I thought those are the right notes to hit, Andy and Tom and A.B. And it did put me in mind of a fireside chat. Wasn't Biden FDR's vice president? (laughs) (laughs) FDR's vice president is the one who said that the vice presidency is not worth a warm warm bucket of piss. (laughs) A job Biden held for eight years. It's no longer true. The vice president now in our system has evolved. It's it's an influential job, but Biden held it. Now he's the top guy, Tom, and he he gets to be the guy who gives the fireside chats and have people respond in predictably partisan ways, which I notice we're not doing today. We're all um, giving nuanced and thoughtful 
responses to his speech. A.B.? Well, you know, again, I, I, I think that it's very clear that he ran to be the opposite of President Trump. And that focus in the beginning that Tom noted, a very detailed list of all of the struggles that this last year has caused uh, was very effective. And he is, through chance, you know, we have we have ended up with someone in our year of worst loss of our lifetimes in this country um, with someone who has suffered more loss than most people we know. And so he is, he stands there and tries to relay, you know, he has all these problems and we have negative partisanship and I don't believe that his polling he enjoys is going to last much longer. But I think that people think this administration is focused on doing things on the pandemic and the economy and that he wants people to stop fighting. And that he's a nice guy, like Tom said. And so that really came across in the speech. Very eloquent, very well-written top, all about pain. And that was really effective. And no, the president shouldn't be, you know, a pastor. um, But they are asked at many times to lead us in collective grief and and sort of mourn with us and, and try to be a healer. And he didn't talk about himself. He, I mean, he bragged once about how the, you know, the overpromising and the under-delivering on the 100 million shots in 100 days they've reached at 60. No other country has done that. But, it, you know, it, he continues to focus all of his comments on the American people and not himself. And that is why I think he's enjoying those polling ratings, because people think that they're very, very focused. Even people that don't agree with their policy platform are, you know, are giving him high marks. Again, I don't know that that lasts. I don't know how much I trust polls anymore. But I think this pause with this quiet guy who's super nice, who looks like he's working really hard and doesn't want to pick fights is really a breather for people after a wretched year. Well, I have to stop this love fest. And no, no, not quite yet, because I'm going to add one more thing to it. A.B. got me inspired. Biden said, and I thought this was the most eloquent line of speech, America's coming back, he said. And then he said, we just saw the Perseverance rover landing on Mars, stunning images of our dreams that are now reality. Another example of the extraordinary American ingenuity, commitment, and belief in science and one another. And that that one another is not a throwaway line with this guy. That's where he is. If I could, I'll end the love fest because I think (laughs) despite Biden's you know, his rhetoric about unity and, and all of that stuff, right? The reality is a little bit different, right? In terms of what he's chosen to do and how he's chosen to do it. And he made the decision to move forward with no Republican support for his COVID bill and jam it through. Um, you know, Biden famously said he was going to be the president for all Americans, right? Red state and blue state. You voted for me. You didn't vote for me. That's not how he's governing exactly. And while he he talks a good game on the unity front and in, in many ways, as Zabie said, I mean, you know, we expect our commanders in chief to stand up there and be the consoler in chief and all that. And he and he filled that role. But when it comes down to the actual uh, policies that he's pushing and how he's going about them, it's it's a bit different. And he's already alienated certainly Republicans. And the question is, you know, when is he going to start to alienate independents? And I mean, he'll alienate some Democrats eventually. But um, it, does that come when he pushes 
immigration reform bill? Does that come, uh, you know, in some other form or fashion? But I do think that unless he actually sits down and and negotiates with Republicans and comes up with something that's bipartisan, it's not going to last. Well, some people think that that moment is here, and that's the border crisis right now. Just uh, a couple numbers that there were 100,000 southwest border encounters in February. That's up from 36,000 in 2020. And 2020 was actually down from 2019, which was about 76,000. So border crossings are up. 9,500 unaccompanied children detained at the border in February. That's up more than 5,800 from the prior month. So this is getting pretty bad down there. And AB, I'm wondering, is, do you think this is, a, this is a moment where his leadership will be tested? And how long can, they, can the White House avoid this? Well, again, I want to um, I want to stress that I don't think those for, for these reasons that his approval is going to last. I think that Americans we were talking about his speech last night and Americans view of how he's handled the pandemic and they've seen him in office, whatever it is, 50 days, 60 days. And um, and they've seen a singular focus on covid and the economy and not you know, making disparaging remarks about Republicans and, you know, looking like a nice guy who has meeting at the White House and, and, is, and is trying. The COVID relief package was the thing that the Democrats were all going to join forces on, Manchin, everybody, because they had to. And from here on out, um, that unity in the Democratic Party is over. And there's going to be a lot of problems again across the aisle that just it's going to get worse because the Democrats are going to try to do too much. What is going on with the border is a crisis. The administration is trying to pretend it's not. They open the floodgates. I have nothing to say to defend them. Congressman Gonzalez, not Tony Gonzalez of Texas, but um, Vincente Gonzalez of the 15th District and Henry Cuellar of Texas. They have two Democrats running around trying to do as much media as possible to tell the administration these communities cannot absorb these arrivals at this pace in the middle of a pandemic. And they're going to have to clean up that mess. As for down the road with their legislative agenda that's going to cause all these all these this infighting with between Democrats themselves, Congressman Yarmouth, the budget chairman, admitted this week uh, in the House that um, they are looking at, you know, oh, they'll try bipartisan infrastructure like Senator Joe Manchin is demanding and President Biden says he wants. But really, they'll still also prepare reconciliation instructions for infrastructure, climate, health care expansion and immigration reform, which is just a suicide mission. Um, if, If you look at the political landscape for the midterm. So last night was sort of this triumphant moment where he had the nation's attention um, about the virus and work they've done on the package, um, the marking of the anniversary of quarantine, uh, the vaccination program. But it is certainly going to get very much more difficult for Biden, and he has very tough decisions ahead. Carl, what do you think? Well, I've written about this for years, Andy. I I covered the first the first legalization bill in 1986, uh, signed by Ronald Reagan, he said it was one of the proudest things he'd done. That was supposed to end the problem. Uh, everybody who'd studied the border knew it wouldn't. You granted essentially legalization of three million people, most of the Mexican American, but the things that would have made the that would prevented the problems were taken out of the bill by by the left and the right. 
the Chamber of Commerce wanted easy to hire American companies to hire workers, and uh, the ACLU wanted it harder to track illegals, and the hiring uh, ban never came to fruition. So here we are, uh, to, you know, 25 years later with, we don't even know, 10, 11 million people who many of them brought here as children, grown up here. They're for all practical purposes American. They, they speak the language, they work, they pay taxes. Uh, Mexican sociologist named Alfred, uh, named uh, Bustamante, used to say, "Let's call them undocumented taxpayers." So this is this is where we are again, and we've <laughs> we've learned what we what we've learned is that if this has got to be comprehensive, you got to make you've got to make the definition clear between what's a migrant, a refugee, and an illegal immigrant. You've got to control your border. These intake facilities probably ought to be in Mexico if we paid for it instead of this dumb wall. The, Mexican government would thank us for it. We need to get a control. And, and the Democrats probably, in my view, need to take race out of the conversation. It's become, it's become toxic. Let's just, this country needs to come to a decision, and it must be bipartisan. Uh, who gets to come here and why and how and under what circumstances and how many? Um, you know, you don't have a right to come to America if you're born in a foreign country. You don't. But we want to extend that opportunity to how many people. And so to me, we need to talk about legal immigration and illegal immigration as one conversation. And the Democrats and Republicans have to sit down and do it. I don't know if Washington even knows how to do that anymore, Andy. I, there's a congressman who told me, uh, he's a mo- one of the few moderates in House, that he met a colleague of his who did not know what a House Senate conference committee was. Member of Congress, never heard of it, Recent, recently elected. This is how far these people have, have got, their, their muscles have atrophied. They don't even have institutional memory. They don't know how to compromise. And this is a decision. Uh, whatever, by, look, Biden's instinct is right, unity, because this is going to take the compromise that Tom talked about. But I don't know that Washington can still do it. But Tom, this is a crisis now. I mean, there may be an immigration bill at some point, but right now we have a real crisis on the border. And you know, 2022 is right around the corner. The Republicans certainly think this is going to be a big winning issue for them uh, in the midterms. And he's getting, you know, he's going to get flack from the left wing of his party. Uh, He's going to get flack from the border state Democrats. I mean, he's really got to thread the needle here. I'm just wondering, do you think he can do it? I don't. And I don't think there is any chance that an immigration bill gets through Congress because the Look, to Carl's point, I mean, it sounds sensible, but it also sounds sort of hopelessly naive. I mean, the the left in this country now, uh, you know, they want open borders. I mean, this was part of the Democratic primary process, basically. And so Biden is, he really is, it's set aside the future immigration bill, right, which doesn't have anything to do with border security as far as we know. And, and I doubt Democrats would be willing to compromise on those issues. So, but right now, the administration is basically denying the problem, even while internally they're acknowledging it. We saw a report that uh, DHS Secretary Mayorkas had sent out an email saying, you know, asking for volunteers at the border because they've got this huge, you know, overwhelming, they need they need more manpower down there to help, you know, handle and process um, these unaccompanied minors that are coming across the border. Um, but, I mean, other than that, the administration is giving no signals that it even knows what to do. Um, they've got kids in, you know, cages or containers or whatever you want to say. And, and even that is, uh, giving, giving some folks on the left, you know, fits. 
about just wanting to basically let these folks, you know, let them through um, in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it, it is a it is a bad situation and it's a tough situation for him politically because um, because the politics of it are just just awful, as you mentioned, I mean, from the left and from the right. And the administration is not really doing an effective job at trying to even thread that needle or or finesse the situation. Um, Jen Psaki is getting asked about it every day, and her, her answers are just simply not going to get the job done. Jen Psaki is the one, press secretary, of course, one, but go ahead, Carl. One thing to what Tom just said. Um, look, this that, that primary process that Tom's talking about, some of the candidates in it, Beto O'Rourke and others, basically said they wanted an open border. And Joe Biden didn't say that, but he didn't correct them either. Now, now, now Joe Biden is president and he has to, and, and, you know, he has to come up with what his theory of the case is, but there's a sense, and Tom's talking about the political fallout and AB alluded to this as well, that the Democratic Party essentially had a welcome sign out for people. And once Trump is out off the picture and the Democrats in the White House, they, oh, it's safe to come. And that's something you know, you don't want to be unfair here, but if that word went out, the Democratic Party and Joe Biden's its head needs to say, well, wait a minute, here, here's here's what Americans' principles are. And that's why I was talking about, I think you need an overall approach, not just legislation. But what the what this uh, cabinet official said, uh, come, but don't come right now or something like that, Tom. I mean, what kind of message yeah. is that? <laughs> they're they're going to have to do better than that. Maybe if, if I had to predict, there's going to be some event on the border that's going to horrify the American people. This is not going to go away. Are they going to have to backtrack at some point? And, and uh, how do they do that? Or, or not? I mean, is this, is this just a new reality? And we do, these numbers are going to keep going up. And everyone keeps pointing out that we're not even at the height of the season where, where border crossings peak. You know, I'm just wondering, do they have to backtrack? And if they don't backtrack, what happens? Well, again, it's just politically untenable, um, but I do think that it will all hinge on whether or not they believe, uh, the administration does, that they can get an immigration package through Congress. You can imagine a scenario where if they believe that, and I agree with Tom and Carl, I guess Carl's slightly hedging, um, but <laughs> I don't think there's any way immigration makes it through this Congress. Um that if they, I think, naively believe they can get an immigration deal, maybe they do something to close the border, tighten the border with promises of some reforms that calm the progressive wing or something like that. If they know, as we do, that an immigration bill is not really going to get through, they might just uh, retain the status quo. Um, it's a, it's a, it's really the worst division in between the center and the left of the party or the Biden administration and the progressive wing or whatever you want to characterize it as. And um, I, yeah, I just think it's, I, I think anyone looking at the numbers and the landscape for 22 uh, knows that um, it's, I don't know what they'll do about it, but if they don't do something about it, they just have to know that they're going to pay a very big price. Oh, I would say too, I mean, for the midterms, Arizona, Texas, Georgia, those are states where this could be a real issue. I'm not sure how far up the ladder it'll climb on the minds of, of voters in, you know, Pennsylvania or, uh, you know, the Rust Belt. Maybe it will, though. The Biden administration needs to be wary of this because they are just, a, you know, a whisker away from losing their majorities in the House and the Senate. And that would that would prove to be that would make uh, the second half of the of the 
Biden administration's first term very, very difficult. Well, um, A.B., uh, speaking of the midterms, you profiled Stacey Abrams this week on RCP. The article is entitled, Can Georgia Republicans Stop Stacey Abrams? So she ran for governor in, in 2018. She lost to, to Brian Kemp, the Republican. But she's gone on. She's a very effective organizer, and she's credited with playing a big role in helping the Democrats win those two seats in the runoff elections. That's what gave the Democrats a majority in the Senate. So pretty critical uh, role she's played. So let me ask the question that's posed in the headline. um, Can Georgia's GOP stop her? Right. Well, I think what's so interesting is not just her sort of prowess and her prominence uh, in the party and nationally and, and these victories she secured in Georgia in November and January, but really the combination of what Trump did to the Georgia Republicans to sink those two incumbent Republican senators on January 5th, and then what he will continue to do in this divided, dysfunctional Georgia Republican Party in the next year and a half. So the question is not, is uh, Stacey Abrams such a powerhouse? It's while they are so divided, can these new voting restrictions that Georgia Republicans are voting on um, and trying to get through the state legislature into law um, reduce the number of vote that she's going to try to register and build and energize um, while they're fighting with each other and while President Trump is trying to primary uh, the sitting governor who she's likely to challenge again next year. So it's it's a sort of a a perfect storm, if you will, of her coming back at that race at a time when she now has national momentum because she helped turn the state blue for Biden and then secure those two Senate seats for what is, you know, not a majority in the Senate, but a 50-50 Senate. And then what is the Republican Party in Georgia going to do? Maybe they pass all these voter restrictions and that really helps uh, them next year, and it really hinders her ability to turn out, a, a, you know, the same kind of vote she did this time. If she runs for governor, she now has a, a bigger platform, uh, more support nationally, and so much energy in the state that her candidacy would just would produce coattails for Senator Warnock, um, who has to be uh, reelected next year. And again, if if it was just a question of that. With the voting restrictions, it would be, you know, like a challenging situation. But you add in what the Republicans are going to do to each other. And it's just, a fa- I think it's the most fascinating state uh, that we'll be watching next year. Tom, is it a microcosm of, of what's happening nationally, where the Republicans are sort of in disarray and Democrats are at least organized, at least at the, at the tip of the spear? Yes and no. I mean, I think it's a more extreme case. Where you do have the sitting governor who, you know, Trump has just blistered, uh, can't stand him, thinks, you know, keeps calling him weak or whatever, and is going to participate in an effort to probably primary him and, and eject him. That is not a good situation for Republicans. Now, that's not the situation all across the country. It is in some places, but in, in Georgia, it seems more acute than in others. On the other hand, <clears throat> you do have the Senate race that uh, A.B. mentioned, and Trump just tweeted out that he wants Herschel Walker to run uh, for Senate against Warnock, which would be a really interesting race mm. uh, because he is such a, a, a popular figure. You know, that would, be, that would be something to watch. But again, you know, what goes on at the top of the ticket might, might hinder Herschel Walker from, uh, you know, from winning that race. So it is, it's going to be fascinating to watch. I totally agree. It's going to be one of the marquee matchups 
governor and Senate races in the country in 2022. And given how close the election was there, both of those elections, just, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, it's going to take up an extraordinary amount of, of money and obviously, uh, you know, media oxygen. And so, Carl, what do you think of the sort of these voting rights rules that they're, they're talking about there? They're talking about ending Sunday voting, which would affect uh, the African-American vote. You know, this is something where Stacey Abrams has been very active as well. And again, we've got nationally, we've got the HR1, which is this For the People Act, which is making its way through Congress right now to change voting laws nationally. So, subhead for Democratic Incumbents Act. But, okay. <laughs> um, well, Tom, I, I actually, Andy and Tom, I, th- I think the Republicans are looking at it wrong. If I were a Republican official in Georgia or anywhere else, I would go about this differently. Not No maybe about it. The, this idea of voting fraud, let's take that off the table for purpose of this conversation. I don't believe, I think there should be strict laws to make sure that people voting who they say they are. But Stacey Abrams is a wake-up call to Republicans, and they don't realize it. There's this thing that it's been part of this conversation. We all accept it. If she can register enough African-American votes, they win. If every African-American in the country votes, Democrats win. That's an unacceptable thing if I'm a Republican. I say, wait a minute, that can't be our position. We can't be the party where we only win if we restrict the vote. We're doing something wrong. And maybe it's our policies um, and maybe we need to change some of our policies, but mostly I think it's the way we communicate. If we don't believe, if we really believe that our party has better solutions, free market solutions, and other ideas that help all working class people, regardless of race, we need to make that case, and we need to make it over and over and over again. And we need to argue that in the merits, and we need to appeal to African American voters. And we we ought to stop acting like we don't want them to vote, because they sense that and they don't like it. And so I think Stacey Abrams. Uh, I, I was a skeptic at first, but what she did was was the right thing. She registered all the people she could who she thought would vote for her candidates, and she registered all the African-American voters she could find. And I think everybody in the country should vote, and if Republicans can't win under those circumstances, they need to rethink their party. That's my view. So, Amy, you, you really dug into this this weekend. I, I really commend people to... Uh uh, to your article, because I think uh, I think you're right. This is maybe the most interesting state uh, right now. You know, you've looked at this. What what is her weakness? What is her Achilles' heel? I mean, every politician has one. Um, she's not Superwoman. No. Um, and thank you, Andy. It 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 is it is definitely the, it's the worst state for Republicans in terms of infighting and stuff. I mean, it, it and, and then it and then other other battlegrounds don't have a Stacey Abrams. That's why I think it's sort of the perfect storm. Stacey Abrams is a disruptor, and she has some enemies in the Democratic Party. Not, it's not overt, but at the same time, that might have been smoothed over in January uh, and November. Um, this was sort of this is a residue from last year where there was a lot of bitterness about the fact that she was not going to run for Senate like Senator Schumer asked her to to challenge David Perdue, and. Who does she think she is? You know, in the in the when we had strong parties, you went to people like Stacey Abrams and you said, someday we'll make sure, you know, the Clinton family would come to you and say, someday we'll make sure that you are the first, you know, African-American woman president. But you're going to run for Senate now and you're going to help the party. And we don't have strong parties anymore. And that kind of thing doesn't happen. And she didn't run for Senate. And people were grumpy about it on the Democratic side. And then they really got grumpy when she started openly lobbying for the vice presidency. And that was seen as, you know, not cool. Um, So 
she has a lot of skeptics. But again, I think the 800,000 new voters between 18 and 20 and the however many thousands she uh, then registered between November 3 and January 5 has won her more uh, more praise. So I, I think she is sort of, you know, Georgia Democrats, you know, superhero. And she has a, a growing network of influence and a lot of money coming in. And like I said, if she were not to run for governor, mm-hmm. she would still really be helpful to the Democrats. But if she runs for governor, that's going to be a, a real coattail situation. She didn't concede her last race. <laughs> she did not concede. <laughs> All right. Well. I mean, but that no, but see, that doesn't embitter that 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 makes her lightning rod with Republicans, but Democrats don't care. Well, I just want to wrap it up here, Carl. So I'm going to give you the last word. Joe Biden talked about unity and these issues we've been talking about: voting rights, the border. They can't be solved by one party or another. Tom pointed out that that the this one point trillion dollar stimulus package was passed on the straight party line, but we've been doing budgets like that since Bill Clinton's first months in office. Fine, that's money. But for the truly big issues, this country needs to figure out, these two political parties need to figure out a way to talk to each other again and compromise, or we're just going to be at each other's throats for the next four years. Well, we're going to leave it there. Um, Go ahead, A.B., were you going to say something? I just said I'm in. Ah. She was just getting the last word. Okay. But now I've got it. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I was just agreeing with Carl's last word. All right. Well, we all agree that bipartisanship is a good thing. Uh, We didn't talk about infrastructure, which is the thing that always brings everyone together. So we'll leave that for another day. (laughs) But the good news, Andy, every week's infrastructure week. So we can talk about (laughs) that next time. That's true. (laughs) So I want to thank my guests, Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon, and A.B. Stoddard. Uh, You can always find out more about all of this on realclearpolitics.com. And as I always do, I urge you to visit Real Clear Politics, read at least one piece from a publication, or a writer with whom you disagree. It will get you ready to talk politics on the 4th of July at that family barbecue when your (laughs) uncle and nephew and aunt are all there. So thanks for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.